Hello, welcome to Why Did Peter Sink? This is the conclusion of reading the Bible through different lenses, and this one is NASCAR, stock car racing, which I don't really watch, but I've seen a little enough of it. Um, all right, let's get started. This is a long one. So we've all been raised on Marvel Comics and politicians and athletes that feign per perfection. But in the Old Testament, the characters are all flawed, which is why I like it. They are also all limited because they are human, not divine. They do awful things. Um, in fact, they're just like real people. Thus, we all have our limitations in that the specs of our design cannot exceed various parameters. Uh, we may feel 10 feet tall, but no one has ever been near that height. Uh, we may feel bulletproof, but every king who has ever lived has passed away into death. I used to joke that when I was drinking, I was taller and better looking, but um, obviously I wasn't. So um, this is going to take me a while to get to it, but we are kind of like NASCAR in that we have predictable speeds and power. We all seek power, but because of our limited predictable dimensions and parameters, power seekers end up in history looking like stock cars passing by with the same engines and spoilers, but just different decals on the exterior to pretend they're different. The Bible also shows our limitations as a group, as a social group, uh, such as the scapegoating mechanism and our rampant tribalism. Biblical characters, uh, most of them would, would be canceled today in our unforgiving modern era. They do, there's a lot of canceling in the Bible itself. They'd you know, kick people out or whatever. But it, nowadays, it's, it's depending on what party you belong to, which is a, just a form of tribalism. So we live in a worse time of scapegoating probably than the Israelites did. And this is because they actually understood the problem with scapegoats and they had the Day of Atonement for sin management. Um, we just have sin. We don't manage it uh, because we don't believe in sin, a lot of us. Sin is best likened to a disease like cancer, where our past unconfessed sins remain with us and grow to enormous proportions. So when we read a medical article about someone who had a 50-pound tumor, we all say, how could someone not know that they had a 50-pound tumor? We're in disbelief. The articles usually have a picture of the person with a glaringly obvious medical problem, and it's baffling to us somehow that uh, someone would not realize that this was a problem. But most of us walk around carrying 50-pound spiritual tumors from sins we've never confessed. The sins from one-night stands, burned bridges, anger, hatred, self-loathing, lying, they all continue to grow on our souls and will continue to do so until the, the disease is loosed in confession. So if we could only see each other's souls. What's interesting is others usually can see our sins, our personal sins, better than ourselves. And it's so easy to know why someone else is spiritually sick, but we cannot see our own spiritual tumors. And so much of our sin is about power or gaining an edge over someone or protecting our little grove that we consider ourselves to be the king of. Um, we all have a grove. If you remember back to the reading the Bible through the lens of Apocalypse Now, the king of the grove, um, even, if, even if our grove is just our social media profile where we feel like the king, but we're not the king. I'm not the king, and realizing that is the greatest relief I've ever had. Knowing I'm a sinner allows me to stop pretending, to stop fighting, and stop squabbling over the scraps from the table. There is a king, and it's not me. And surrendering to the loving, living God is like having this massive spiritual tumor cut away and all that ugly growth from many years of power-seeking, pleasure-seeking behavior. It can be put aside. So this is why I like the Old Testament. We can see the diseased state of sinful lives. And it's really obvious when you read it. Everybody loves to pull out the 
the lines that they don't like in the Old Testament and, and lift them up. Um, the supernatural reading of the Old Testament changes everything, though. So Michael Heiser was a writer who recently passed away. He was a, a, a doctor of, um, I don't know, whatever, theology or something. He, recently, uh, he had a documentary that can get you started to help you read the Bible supernaturally. I really think his book, The Unseen Realm, is an excellent one. Um, and in, so unless you believe in God and the devil, you will read the Bible like a 21st century American like Google brain person, and you'll you'll miss the whole point. You will miss all of it, because if you don't read it with a supernatural sense. Whenever someone points out the shortcomings of the Old Testament patriarchs or prophets, I want to remind them that, yes, exactly, you're catching on. Sin is narrated in the Old Testament for a reason, and that reason is that these people were not the incarnation of God like Jesus was, who didn't sin. Um, everyone else was struggling in this world to work toward his grace, but failing and often choosing sin, but like the patriarchs are trying to get back to the one God in a world gone crazy. <laughs> the Old Testament, unlike other mythology systems, it shows the ugly side of humanity. And if you disagree, go read about Samson again in Judges, in the book of Judges, and see if you still think he was a model for living. So if you think of Samson as a saint, um, please stop and reread his story. St. Augustine famously said, it is narrated, not praised, to help us understand a guy like Samson. But rest assured, Samson is in the book of Judges for a good reason. There's much to learn from the story of Samson. It's not just that he was a good guy who could do whatever he wanted because God said so. Um, if you read the Bible in that way, such that anyone under the banner of the chosen people is flawless, then you have spiritually drawn the Monopoly card that reads, Return to Go and do not collect $200. You need to start again. So if you read about Samson, say, well, clearly he was predestined and chosen, so he could just do whatever he wanted, whatever he wanted. Just stop right there and think about what you're saying. Um, it doesn't make sense at all. Samson, okay, now I'm going to talk about Samson for a minute. He was supposed to be like a monk consecrated to God. He was a Nazarite, not a Nazarene, as Jesus, they say he was a Nazarene. <clears throat> a Nazarite is someone who doesn't sleep around, drink, or touch dead things, or cut his hair. So he's a, it's a monkish thing. Um, there's something always about hair, even in even in like Eastern cultures, with they don't cut their hair. But he wasn't supposed to drink or touch anything of the grape, um, touch dead things, or cut his hair. And what is his story? What is Samson's story about? It's about him doing all of those things. So he's consecrated to God as a Nazarite, and he breaks every single one of those. Even when he destroys the Philistines by using a donkey's jawbone, he's touching a dead thing right there. He eats the honey out of the dead lion carcass. And he's not doing any of this for the glory of God. He's winning a battle. Perhaps God is using him in some greater plan, but he's certainly not fulfilling his consecration. Um, he And then he literally asks for strength to get revenge. So if anything, Samson proves the old adage of the Lord works in mysterious ways. And the reason the story of Samson is important is because we see the strangeness of history, of sin, of leaders, um, of, of salvation history. And it's the same with Cain, of how is he working into this. Uh, when you go and read the Old Testament with the chosen people blinders on, you miss the richness of this narrative. Um, as I said, the, the old white hat, black hat cowboy movies that Americans want to find um, it ain't in the Old Testament. It's not that simple. Trent Horn wrote, um, the Bible is not a sterile collection of perfect people who always follow God's will. 
It is instead a drama about how God redeemed imperfect people and used them in spite of their flaws to accomplish his sovereign and holy will for mankind. And I say, thank God for that, because a story of perfect robots is not a human story and is not interesting unless you are under 10 years old. Uh, The great story of Israel has much more going on than Wyatt Earp's showdown at the OK Corral. There is indeed a good guy and a bad guy with God reclaiming the world from the fallen angels, but that is what we forget while we zero in on the individual character or verse here or there. Not only are there fallen angels, there are fallen people. And here's the point. Those people are redeemable. Arguably, even the Pharaoh of Exodus is redeemable. Uh, Thus, when people get fired up over the violence in the book of Joshua, or um, when in in 2 Peter, he calls Lot righteous um, after he offer, offer, and Lot is the guy who offers up his daughters for rape. Um, they, when, you, when you get laser focused on those, you're reading it in a way that we don't read or watch anything else. So why are we so dense at reading the Old Testament when we can follow intricate narratives in a 10 season TV show uh, that shows the depth and nuance, the slow burn of individual characters why do we choose to read the Old Testament like children instead of adults? That's what I can't quite understand. I think we probably because most of us only read it as children and we got the the Disney type of version of it, a Nickelodeon kind of version. Um, and that is what I, I think it's simple. It's most of us haven't really read it. And if we have, we didn't since we were children. So we got the white hat, black hat, cowboy version of it, which is great until you're no longer a child. Um, we haven't ha- even had a tour of the adult version, which is a much more serious and dark version. There's a lot more happening in the Bible stories than like Noah with the happy animals. The flood story alone goes from being a pack of happy animals on a ship to an utterly terrifying world ending mayhem. Another possibility is that we received an extremely dumbed down fundamentalist reading of the Bible, which is great for becoming familiar with the stories, but not for any depth and nuance. And when I say fundamentalist, I mean both the capital F fundamentalists and the new atheist types that are all over the internet today, because both of them read the Bible in a way that will get you nothing out of it. I can't stress this enough. Um, Reading the Bible using the four senses of scripture is how it opens up into a four-dimensional trip. Um, So many people in charge, uh, many people charge in and say, um, I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And then they they go and you can read Genesis because that's kind of, um, it's interesting and Exodus until you get to the description of the ark and how it's like 40 pages of describing the ark. And then you hit Leviticus and Numbers and the wheels come off. You, you, it's so, you think it's boring. It appears to be unrelated to the modern world, when in all reality, all of it is central to the experience we are living in right now. And if you are going to read the Bible in a Year, follow the Bible in a Year podcast um, with Father Mike Schmitz, and you will go far. You will go far, far. Uh, it'll be much better than doing it on your own. So, but the main reason I think why adults read the Bible like cowboy, black hat, white hat stories is this. We read the Old Testament like 10-year-old pro wrestling fans because we don't understand that we are living in a spiritual war. I think most people do not realize that today. In our modern assumptions about the world, we forget that ghosts are real, that spirits exist, that we have souls. Um, The word for ghost and spirit is the same, and we have souls. 
uh, we use the word soul, but laugh at the idea of ghosts, but the word is the same. Um, we, we just have a cartoon version of ghosts now due to TV shows like Scooby-Doo and Casper and whatever movies like Poltergeist. But we still know that we have souls in the quiet places of our hearts and minds. Our adult data-driven minds forget that there is more types of knowledge than what can be graphed or measured. We don't accept that there is more than just matter, but also spirit. So admitting that angels and demons are real does not often come from college-educated lips. And why is that? Well, it's because we think we know better. Uh, frankly, we don't read the Bible believing that God is real. I think we read it like, like a functional atheism, actually. Thus, we don't understand the overarching story that leads to Christ's defeat of the devil and thereby miss the entire point of the entire library known as the Bible. And if you don't believe in the devil, you probably don't believe in God. And if you don't believe in God, you probably don't believe in souls. And if you don't believe in souls, you don't believe that you could spend eternity in either heaven or hell. But you can, and you will. This is the root problem for many of our social and mental maladies as well today. We have, numbered, we have numbed, numbed the part of our brain that allows for belief in the supernatural. We've flattened God into the all religions are the same, that sort of quote, when they are anything but the same. Jesus is not like any other religious figure ever. Um, this is why whenever I read about an academic paper that suggests all prehistoric, prehistoric peoples were egalitarian, I know immediately that I'm reading some kind of propaganda because not only do we not know that, but the authors of such things usually have an agenda and bias and usually one that matches some form of one of many isms, which I won't list off. But in short, there's, there's a major anti-Christian bias. I'll have a series on that. I think I'll post that at some point as well. But, and if you, think that's, if you don't think that's true, enroll in a modern university and test it out. Take a class, any class in anthropology or history or English, any of the humanities really, and listen for commentary on organized religion or belief in the supernatural, and you will hear the laughs. Um, anything that poses as science also denies the supernatural, and real science has to do that. Biology and chemistry and physics and math, especially math. Um, it's just observing how things work. But many things that pose as science, they are not actually science. There's an ideology creeping in everywhere. And the goal of any ideology is power. So I'm getting to NASCAR. I'm getting there. Um, universities have a spiritual nature too, but the spirit is not from God. Um, and in denying God, they fear language that speaks of God. Um, there's a heavy bias against Christianity. And I'll probably go into that more later. But the creed of what we have today is more aligned with the religion of hum humanism or socialism far more than, say, Catholicism. Or you could say utilitarianism or liberalism. I would say liberalism has been the obviously the big one of the last couple hundred years. Um, classical liberalism, which is now fading away. But um, so because of this, universities have become they have these power movements happening. Um, they have a right now kind of a self-congratulating, backslapping loop of non-believers uh, where there's jockeys or drivers in the race. Uh, for tenure require, and they require adhering to specific speech codes and they shut out, you know, those who are not adhering to that. So the non-believers have a standing army. It's like the king of the grove. They're all together. It's a tribe. And whoever comes to slay the slayer, like in my Apocalypse Now episode, they will be the next priest king. So right now they have to hold that power as much as possible. But what I'm trying to get to here is that the thing about power is that it's all the same. 
it's all the same. It's meet the new boss, same as the old boss, to quote the Who. And it's like NASCAR, finally. Every power seeker is ultimately the same. You can see it in the in the Bible, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Americans. Um, you don't have, getting out of the Bible. You can just look at the world around us. Every power seeker is ultimately the same. It is only the king who is the suffering servant that is different. Every single other power seeker preaches the opposite of the Beatitudes. So like race cars, like stock cars, ideology that seeks power is trying to win a race. And what is the race for power? It is the idea that there is a solution to all the world's ills through a set of ideas rather than through God. That's what ideology is. So in NASCAR, cars must be built a certain way. Mechanics and engineers can only massage and tweak the strict engine and chassis requirements so much before the speed tops out because by physics, there's a limit to what can be done. There's a blocker on what can be done with these cars. And it's the same with ideology because like stock cars, ideas cannot exceed their worldly dimensions. So materialism in all its forms can only use the things of this world. So that's why liberalism, capitalism, socialism, scientism, techno-utopia, postmodernism, utilitarianism, and all the rest have the solution to win the race. Um, they're going to stave off all suffering and pain. They're going to bring worldly victory. They're going to bring heaven to earth. But if there's one thing Jesus showed us is that suffering is part of our lives here. Um, even he who cured diseases and cast out illnesses and, and demons still had to suffer himself and suffer greatly because of sin in the world. The cause of all suffering is personal sin, not external enemies. And until everyone realizes that we will indeed have oppression and suffering, the remedy um, is to follow both the commandments to love God first and then to love others as Jesus loved us. There's only, that, that's, that's the Christian message, to love God, you will, he will, to love God and love others, but also to follow his commandments. Jesus says, I know you will, you will show that you love me if you follow my commandments. So the lesson is we must first seek the kingdom of God and accept what suffering may come. And when God is ready, he will bring heaven to earth and not before. That doesn't mean we don't work toward those things, but by loving God and loving others who are near you, like I always say, call your mother, call your brother, you know, do something like that. That's how you carry this out, not by some grand... Um, some plan uh so you can do th little things all the time like saint therese of Lisieux, she had the little way she was not like a stock car she was like more like jesus so now back to stock cars the stock cars of auto racing are like the stock beliefs of ideology that block the supernatural from our lives i i believe that there is a half of us that love god or think we do and another half that loves others or pretend we do and both of these groups in our world are firing on three cylinders instead of all six. You must put God's love and love of others together to exceed the restrictions of this world's physics. And yet, like NASCAR, there are still rules to follow while doing it called the commandments. And the way to do so is spelled out in detail in the greatest book other than the Bible, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, but our modern gods of culture um, it's limited by the constraints of unbelief. So we have unbelief in our corporations, in academia, and the media. And so we they teach us that we're alone, that God is not alive. We have to pretend this all the time. 
So obviously our efforts to try to solve all suffering with ideas and to break the physical and spiritual laws using ideology, it always ends up breaking all the rules because it turns into a religion without God. You can't, any religion without God at the top is, is pretty silly. So that's why we can all laugh and cry at the line. Um, in capitalism, man oppresses man. In communism, it's just the opposite. I don't think there's a truer line about these isms because um, when they are left to run their their race and they win, um, you see a, just shambles behind them. If you have pure capitalism or pure communism, it's it's oppressive either way. Um, this is why books, uh, papal encyclicals like um, Rerum Novarum or Centesimus Animus or, yeah, anyway, I won't go into that. That's why they're good reads. Catholic social teaching should be read, but no one reads it. Now, power that defers to no higher power cannot accomplish what it sets out to do, which is to create heaven on earth. All of the kings of this world are the same people. They might be in different parties, but they're the same people. What Democrats and Republicans in America often do not understand is that they are the same people, just as the Nazis and the communists were the same people. It's like any NASCAR feud. So in recent years, um, there was a skirmish between Chase Elliott and Kevin Harvick at Bristol, and they're two NASCAR drivers. They nearly duked it out over a race while the crowd cheered it on. Um, <laughs> what are the drivers after? They want the cup. They want the championship. They want the power. And what does the mob want? The mob and the crowd is cheering this fight on. They want whichever car they cheer for to get power, so by proxy, they can feel powerful. That's what fandom is, just like world politics. We only wave flags because we want our side to win, because our side, we believe, has the ideology that deserves to win. But it's mostly about self-interest, typically. So whoever wins the power only matters in how they wield the power and to whom they give glory toward. And if it's not to God, it's going to fail. So to follow this through a bit more, both drivers, in this case, Kevin Harvick and Chase Elliott, are pretty much interchangeable. Um just like the cars they drive. They have both been blessed to be in racing families and God given they have God-given talent to drive um, and surely a, a convenient set of fortunate happenings to get them into this elite and small field of NASCAR racing. They have hit the lottery of gifts in terms of auto racing. Now, if Kevin Harvick's soul was swapped into Chase Elliott and vice versa, it's likely the drama would be the same because they would still be driven to win the cup. But it would also make a really good Freaky Friday style of movie or 13 going on 30 or any of those. Because after the swap, Kevin Harvick would, would realize that Chase Elliott and his mechanics are probably really decent guys in the same pursuit of the cup. And perhaps he might return to his own body full of love for his enemy and a new appreciation of the sport of racing. All right, better yet, a terrific ending would be when both resume racing for the greater glory of God like the, the dude in Chariots of Fire who ran for love of the game, not the trophy, as his angry opponent did. Or Rocky in Rocky IV when he's fighting for the love of boxing versus Ivan Drago, who's forced to do it like a robot. Um, the reason Jesus is so interesting to every generation is because he's obviously different from every other power seeker in human history. Um, why is he so different? Because he's not seeking power. He already has it. All of it. He has all of it. And so he's giving it all away, all the time, and he's serving us all, and we don't really deserve it. He's like the lowest guy in the pit crew who hands the lead mechanic the wrench 
and gets yelled at for doing it too slowly. And then he doesn't object or complain, despite being the inventor of the automobile and, great, and greatest mechanic in the universe, the creator of everything. So thus, reading the Bible in the light of power is illuminating because we are living in a time where the West, that has been under the power of classical liberalism and humanism, is turning toward atheism and strange brands of like Gnosticism, and quite literally every heresy since you know Jesus rose from the dead. For those who win power on earth, they will have their prize. They will gain the commanding heights of economies and governments. They'll win the cup for a while. And then when we tire of that driver, another stock car will come along with a new ideology and flag and will replace it. And whoever wins the cup, um, they inherit the fear of losing it. So the shame and honor, honor culture is ballooning. It's always ballooning and will continue to do so. And when power is lost or perceived to be threatened, the scapegoats will be trotted out um, as usual. So power games are so predictable that it looks really no different than the Daytona 500, except the Daytona 500 brings more joy to people because the winner of a car race doesn't promise heaven. As soon as the winners in society get what they want and believe they've saved the world, if only everyone would fall into line with their plan, then they begin to oppress the world in a new way. Some winners are better than others. And those are the ones that, at least nominally, like Thomas Jefferson, tip their hat to God for what they have been given here on earth. But that tip of the hat to God can be used as a smokescreen for blatant power grabs too. Even the church, um, there's been plenty of corrupt church people who have done that, obviously. McCarrick, for one. Um, anyway, let's not go there. That's a whole episode on its own. All ideas and movements that promise to bring heaven on earth are false because only God will do that. And he will do that on the last day when Jesus returns. So when the Bible is read as it is not intended to be read, it becomes a dead letter. Um, when it is read through the lens of NASCAR, you can easily see what the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Herodians, the, the Romans, the Greeks, uh, even what the Israelites are doing in some cases when they, when they reject God. But the lesson is this. No power is given here on earth except that what has come from God above. And that's what Jesus tells Pontius Pilate during his trial. And Pontius Pilate thinks it's his hard work and pluck that made him the governor of Judea. And that's incorrect, according to Jesus. This, is, this also explains the violence in the Old Testament, and how a tiny army could overrun Canaan, or how Abraham with 300 men could overrun the five kings who captured his, his nephew Lot. Um, just as the nation of Israel gets its power from God, this power is also taken away by God through other people and nations. Other nations appear to take the power, but God's plan is somehow always working within this world, especially when we cannot understand it. So in many ways, we are like a dog staring at a stock car race, having no idea why the cars are going in a circle. So um, all power here in this world is given by God, and we should serve in humble gratitude if it comes to us, as we have free will to reject or cooperate with God's grace. He gives us all sufficient grace to use our intellect and will to realize that we need a savior, a savior, and no one in the end can say, I didn't have enough evidence to believe, as Bertrand Russell famously imagined he would tell God after death. Any political power or NASCAR champion must understand the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And the answer in both cases, winning or losing, is to become the humble people, is to become, become humble before God and to keep his commandments. When Israel conquers Canaan, people fail to understand that God is granting power to Israel. He's granting them the sign, the fulfillment of the covenant 
or the beginning of the covenant because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. And when the nation later sins terribly and repeatedly, God takes away what was given to them. So this is not prosperity gospel interpretation. I would call this humility gospel. And in the book of Job, after he loses his family and wealth, his buddies say, perhaps you just weren't holy enough. And that's why all this suffering has come your way. Well, that's the prosperity gospel in one line. You just weren't holy enough to be rich. To which I would say, who is more holy than Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate? And what happened to him? He suffered. He suffered. So um, it's important to remember that. Even if you serve God, you may suffer in this life. And still the answer is, as Jesus showed us, is to pray and bless the name of the Lord. Even in his agony, Jesus cried out to God, quoting the 22nd Psalm, which many people are confused about. I was confused when he says, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as a child, I thought, how could Jesus seem to think God left him if he's God? The problem is, was that I had no idea that he was quoting the first line of a psalm, which is a beautiful prayer for times of suffering. He was even praying from the cross, and even in his final words, he offered his spirit to God. He's offering it up. He's showing us what we need to do. And when he appears most defeated and most powerless, like he's out of the race, um, his, his, his car is dead, it's over, the body's done, then he's about to show us what real power is on the third day when the women come to the empty tomb. Jesus doesn't need power over the Romans because he has power over the, what the Romans fear most, which is death. Um, it's, it's, it's that this is what Jesus came to destroy. Um, it's this kind of power-based thinking that from the devil, the accuser, the divider, the father of lives, of lies. Um, if we just see the world as a power struggle, then we cannot yet say, I was blind, but now I see. The Christian way of seeing the world is not the same as Nietzsche or Marx or or Hitler or Stalin or Foucault or even um, Kendi, who's writing right now, or D'Angelo. They they don't they see the, everything as a power struggle. We must put on the mind of Christ to set step out of this circular race, this NASCAR race, where the head eats the tail. This model of the world like that. All right. So to sum up, if you forget this and you think power is the narrow gate to heaven, you won't see the big picture. You will forget that God exists because you get caught up in the games here. And to forget this is a, is folly. To forget God is the same as rejecting God because you will lose the context and perhaps much else. Um, if you're looking for single verses to mock, you may become more focused on the body than the soul. And though the body is important and good, it is not the only thing to be concerned with. So when you lose awe, wonder, and reverence for the real power that created all things, and you get fixated on the the stock car race here in this world, you may forget the most important thing, which is the creator. The danger then is to think that this world and your body is all that there is. And once that happens, you can be easily distracted, which is what the devil prefers. Jesus gave us clear instructions. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So if you think Jesus was just some nice guy, some dude who came here to permit everything, you might want to reread the Gospels carefully. We are not meant to be the king or the judge. We are asked to follow in servant mode as Jesus did. He is the one who can forgive, who can, who can give us the rest and the peace that we are really looking for, rather than a false power we imagine will bring us happiness. So I would say, don't waste your life chasing the little kingdoms and the title belts and the NASCAR cups of this world, unless you are doing it for 
the greater glory of God if you are doing it out of love for that thing. And even then, should you somehow be granted the trophy or the power or the victory of any kind, then it's even more important to remember gratitude to the real power because it didn't come from you. All right, that's the end of this series on reading the Bible through different lenses. I hope you enjoyed it. Tried to have a little bit of fun with it. Um, maybe we'll try to add more humor in future episodes, but any, in any case, um, I'll see you on the next one.